Okay, hi, I'm John. I'm a postdoc in Andrew Murray's lab, and Andrew was here, I think, about five weeks ago, and he covered a, some of what I'm going to talk about, but more in survey form, I think, so I'm going to go more into the genetic details uh, that he probably didn't cover so well. Um, sorry if some of this is reviewed to you. Uh, first, I'd like to thank both Andrew and Kevin Foster. They're my two co-advisors under whose mentorship I did all this work. And Kevin is now, a, uh, is, uh, now at University of Oxford. And also thank you to the grant that funded my postdoc from the NIGMS. Okay. Uh, quickly, I'm going to cover three things here. Uh, how could multicellularity have evolved in an intro? How I engineered growth in low sucrose? And finally, how we evolved growth in low sucrose. First start with the introduction here. So a lot of you uh, probably came here hoping to figure out how evolution could have taken us from a coenoflagellate uh, sometime almost a billion years ago to this happy guy over here. <laughs> so <laughs> David may have his own theories about this, but it's, it's a hard thing to recreate this and um, figuring out what happened um, you know, over the last billion years based on only DNA sequences and some fossils that we have is very difficult to do. So instead, I'm just going to... They came from a common ancestor. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. The arrow went the other way. That's true. I, sh I should say some kind of cousin of Coenoflagellate. Yeah. <laughs> Can we devolve, David? We'll see. Um, instead, I'm going to cover how we went from a single-celled yeast to a multicellular clump of yeast that looks like this. Of course, I'm not sure what relevance this really has, this transition has to this transition, but I'm hoping by looking at this and understanding the strategies that yeast took to encounter the selection I'll describe to go from here to here, and knowing the mutations that underlie those strategies and knowing the genetic networks that are affected by those mutations, we can learn something about how this happened. Um, so we can kind of tell a plausible story of what might have happened a long time ago. Uh, we have a multi, so this is a, each of these are a cell, so this is a unicellular world right here. Oh, I forgot about this. Uh, and a mutation occurs. This mutation causes the uh, daughter cells to cling on to the mother cells after cell division. So eventually a clump forms. And this clump gives the cell some advantage in the environment. What that advantage may be, I'll go into soon. But um, just know for now that the average fitness of one of the cells inside this clump is greater than the average fitness of a cell outside the clump. Therefore, this mutation will spread through the population. And eventually, simple multicellularity will evolve. And I'm only going to cover this transition uh, from a single cell to just an undifferentiated clump of cells. Uh, which I would refer to as simple multicellularity, as opposed to more complex multicellularity where there's cell differentiation and germ soma division and everything else we, we associate with more complex organisms. Um, I do have projects working uh, trying to study this transition that I can talk to you about later if anyone's interested. And for this transition, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be talking about what is the selection pressure that might have brought us from here to here? Uh, what strategies can answer that pressure? So if I present a selection, what are the different ways that a cell can, can overcome this selection and adapt to the environment? And finally, what are the mutations underlying each strategy? Because only by understanding the mechanisms, I think we can understand what really happened in the evolution.
and I'll be describing mostly three parts, modeling, engineering, and experimental evolution. Okay. Any questions about that? Is it clear that it's always goes from single cell to this jump? No, 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 not at all. I, it, what actually happened when yeast was domesticated, uh, yeast in the wild are frequently clumpy, and the, uh, the lab yeast that's mostly used, S288C, which was um, isolated by Robert Mortimer back in the 40s, I think, he took a lot of different strains of yeast and crossed them together, so it's a big conglomerate of many different strains, and he selected for the yeast to be single cell, just because um, it's easier to study single cells if you're looking at the yeast, and also because if you played out single cells, you know that you're starting from a single cell, so the colony will be clonal. So in that case, we artificially selected for things to be single cell. Um, I'm sure there's, some of the people here probably know more than me, but I'm sure there's plenty of examples where um, you go from a multicellular organism back down to a single cell organism. I think someone was mentioning coenoflagellates was one possible example. Just one thing I noticed when in the early stage of your transition, you had a single cell and then you had clumps of cells and then miraculously those clumps of cells were leaving clump offspring. Oh, yeah, I'll get, I'll get to that. I'll get to the many different, um, the many different things I saw. So um, you're saying, so there's different, um, are you asking a question about how a clump can divide either partition into two clumps or maybe a spring off clump? Yeah, you'll see the, the, some of the variation I see in the evolved strains. Yeah, I'll talk about that. So it is formally possible that the early stage doesn't have to be driven by selection, right? And as soon as you start clumping and mm -hmm. maybe you avoid a size-selected predator if you're too big to go down the hatch. Right, but that is selection in a way, though. This area, so mm -hmm. maybe it's just a wash, and then you know you go along that way, and you know eventually some secondary mutations arise that further ensure that you're a clone, and maybe there's no easy way back. Sure, that's that's a good point. It could be some kind of it could be genetic drift or something neutral. Although the the, the predator would be minor selection in that case. It would be selection and not eat the the large clump of cells. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It could be something something that's not selected for, and then um, other mechanisms reinforce that clumpiness, yeah. That's an interesting point. I wondered about it as well. To what extent could you get clumping by drift in the sense that once you've got two cells stuck to one another, mm -hmm. you know, they're now in close physical proximity, so, so presumably resources are going to be that much more limiting, and they're also excreting products uh, from metabolism, which would toxify their environment a bit. I mean, I, you know, I just wonder. Yeah, so I, I think it, it would certainly be easy in an organism like a fungus where there's cell walls present already because any loss of function mutation that uh, prevents these cell walls from separating will keep two cells together after cytokinesis. Animal, the animal kingdom, like the coenoflagellates, I imagine it would be a lot more difficult when there's no cell wall um, for a single mutation to, to happen to do that. But yeah, I, I think that's plausible in, in at least the fungal kingdom. Okay, uh, so I'll introduce yeast, yeast sucrose digestion to you because this is what I'll be talking about. So this is a yeast cell, and yeast cell wall, yeast cell is about four to five microns in diameter, and yeast cell wall is around 100 nanometers thick. Uh, yeast can directly import glucose into hexose transporters that are located around the cell and it can also directly import fructose. The, uh, on the other hand, yeast in the lab cannot directly import sucrose. 
Instead, in low glucose conditions, the yeast makes invertase. It's an enzyme that's, that will be secreted and it will be lodged in the cell wall. And that's encoded from the gene SUC2. And this invertase will hydrolyze sucrose, which is a disaccharide of fructose and glucose, into fructose and glucose, which, as I said before, are directly imported into the cell. And this is a very inefficient process because only a small fraction of this fructose and glucose will be imported by the cell. Uh, nearly all of it is actually lost into the media. And uh, I did experiments that I won't show you now, but uh, yeast cells, single yeast cells, cannot grow in low sucrose concentrations because all the glucose and fructose will diffuse away from the cell. So at a low density of sucrose, where there's not many of these disaccharides around, and at a low density of cells, where the cells aren't located close enough to each other to feed each other, these cells cannot grow. And here's a cartoon just um, describing what I'm talking about. So this pink area around each of these cells is monosaccharide concentration. And if this is a continuous source of monosaccharide, this will fall away from this uh, sphere here at 1 over R. And if we space these far enough, these cells won't capture enough glucose and fructose to be able to survive. On the other hand, if we collect all these cells together, so if, these, if there's some spatial configuration where these cells are right next to each other, they, this guy will be able to feed off of all the glucose and fructose that are diffusing away from all these other cells. And that may give it an advantage so it can capture enough glucose and fructose in order to grow. Is there some kind of physical constraint that uh, prevents the, the cell from just, I mean, why can't they import sucrose? I'll, I'll talk about that later, but in the, uh, in the wild, um, there's, a, uh, there's a transporter that, that is called the mall transporter because it was isolated as far as the maltose pathway, and it does have some affinity for um, sucrose as well. So this can import sucrose, but that's variable in different strains, and our lab strain is actually, is actually not able to import sucrose. But it will never evolve the ability, never evolve that particular transporter? Or? Well, in the experiment, oh, that's something I'll talk about. In the experimental evolution I did, it never evolved the ability to import sucrose. Okay. Uh, so the first thing I did be before these um, experiments I'll describe is, is model, just a simple diffusion model of whether a single cell could grow in low sucrose and whether a clump of cells instead could capture enough fructose and glucose in order to grow. So uh, the model I'll describe has a yeast cell inoculated into 150 microliters of sucrose. I chose that volume because that's the volume I usually use in a 96 well plate. And at each time step of this model, a cell will produce invertase depending on how much glucose is outside the cell. It will hydrolyze sucrose into glucose and fructose. It will import glucose and fructose. Both of these are with Michaelis Menten kinetics, uh, depending on the glucose concentration outside the cell. And then uh, sucrose and glucose and fructose will both diffuse in the environment. So sucrose, so there will be a gradient of sucrose set up um, going to the cell and a gradient of glucose and fructose set up going away from the cell. And then to approximate a clump of cells around the center cell, I just add a mean field of cells to account for the other cells in this well. 
And um, all of these values that I use for this are either measured by me or taken from publications. And if anybody's interested in the numerical diffusion solver, it's on the web. So the, uh, the results of this are as follows. So this, in this graph, this is uh, the distance away from the center cell. This is the monosaccharide concentration, so either glucose or fructose, after 30 hours of simulation time. Uh, this is an eight millimolar sucrose, a very low concentration of sucrose. Uh, you can see the, uh, the value of glucose in a clump is much higher uh, inside the clump and at the clump edge than the uh, level of glucose and fructose in a, in, um, outside a cell in the middle of 30 dispersed cells. So here I'm, I'm comparing 30 cells in the clump, tightly packed together, versus 30 dispersed cells around this 150 microliter volume. And the units of distance are cell diameters? Uh, no, the units of distance are microns. Microns, excuse yep. me, sorry. And then I also track the, um, the nutrient intake at the center cell. So over 30 hours, you can see the uh, 30 clump cells rise to a, rises to a very, um, very quickly to a quasi-equilibrium up here, up around 10 to the seventh molecules per second. And the 30 dispersed cells slowly rises up to not even 10 to the six uh, molecules of glucose uh, over the 30 hours. And if you look at values of, uh, that people have measured in low chemostat growth, the minimum intake for growth is normally around a million molecules of glucose per second. So from this model, I would predict a clump of cells can grow in some concentration of sucrose where single cells cannot grow. Everyone with me okay? And this depends on the environment, structured versus unstructured? That's right. Yep. Independent environment, so even a well mix. Um, so a well-mixed, I would approximate as, as the dispersed environment as well. Um, so all the experiments, the, the experiments I'm going to show you next are done um, not shaken plates, um, but I'll be comparing dispersed environment to a clump. So you can think of this center cell as a clump versus dispersed cells as two different environments for the single cell that's trying to grow. Yeah. No, this is a 2D? No, this is a one-dimensional radial uh, model here. So it's 3D, but it's it's only um, it's it's assuming the um, um, it's assuming it's radially symmetric. And the diffusion constant of the of the sucrose is not different inside the cells. cells? Inside the clump, yeah, I assumed it was the same. I, it would be even more. That was the more conservative way to assume it is that the diffusion constant outside and inside the clump was the same. Okay, so um, to do these experiments, fortunately, uh, in the Krugliak lab, they found the gene, one of the genes responsible for clumpiness in the wild. And it's probably one of the genes that was selected for originally um, when Robert Mortimer isolated domesticated yeast. Um, so these two strains are, uh, express a different constitutive fluorescent protein. That's why they're pseudocolored differently in this image. And they only have one genetic change. Either they have this wild version of AMN1, the gene Krugliak found, which is colored in green, or the lab version of AMN1, which is colored magenta. And you can see the clumpiness of the two different strains is significantly different. So I used, to do, the, to do this experiment, I used this strain right here. They don't mix? Never mix? The clumpies. They, they never mix. I'm sorry? They, they never mix. 
Oh, so in this, in, this, these, in this image I took, these were grown together. In the experiment I'm going to, dis going to describe, they're not mixed. Okay, so um, to do this experiment I used a fax machine. And a fax machine's handy because you can not only count cells and put these cells in certain spaces with a fax machine, but you can also uh, pick sizes of things. And I was able to uh, uh, either selectively put in single cells or a clump of cells using a fax machine in different wells. So I started with a 96 well plate. For those of you who have never seen it, it's about this big. It's 96 wells in it. Uh, and there's 150 microliters of media in each well. In this case, I put different, uh, different concentrations of sucrose or glucose and fructose in each of the wells. And then I inoculated these either cells or clumps into alternating wells of this 96 well plate using the fluorescent activated cell sorter. And in the alternate wells, as a control, I uh, used, strain, used a strain, the identical strain, except the SUC2 gene has been removed so it doesn't produce invertase. So these cells should not grow. And then my prediction from this previous model is that there would be growth in only the cells that produce invertase are in a clump and are in a clump in some concentration of sucrose. And that's what I saw. So at this eight millimolar concentration of sucrose, what you're seeing here is an image of this 96 well plate. And you're not looking at cells here, you're looking at the colony that the cell forms after about three and a half days of growth when it's not moved. So you can see in these, in these rows, the control rows and in the cells rows, there's no growth and there's growth only in the, the row into which I inoculated a clump. And the sucrose was um, mixed ahead of time? You're not shaking these? No, no, these are not shaken. So yeah, before I even inoculated them on the fax machine, I had already put media inside these wells. And you, this is what, it looks, what the plate looks like when you use a monosaccharide. Uh, four millimolar glucose plus four millimolar fructose. You can see there's growth from every cell here and growth from every clump down here. The four clumps or so upstairs? These are the single cells, right, that you see? There's still single cells here, but they each form their own colony. Oh, okay. Okay, so um, I won't describe, I, I was using wild yeast to look at um, uh, to look at if, uh, to see if any wild yeast could, could use any other strategy to grow in low sucrose that maybe I hadn't thought of. And when I was, I tested a bunch of different strains of wild yeast and I found that a few of them could grow in low sucrose concentrations from a single cell. So I knew that there had to be other strategies for growth from a single cell and I was trying to figure out what those were. So I built two different other strategies in yeast um, that would allow them to grow on sucrose. Uh, one of them, is, the first strategy here is what I just described. They can form multicellular clumps. The second one is they can make more invertase. Uh, yeah. You said that you took wild type yeast and you observed that it could grow on sucrose. Mm -hmm. And you didn't try to understand which strategy they use. You, you would want to engineer another strategy that would do the same or? Yeah, that, that's right. So I didn't, I didn't go into, I didn't go into the wild yeast um, to see what strategy they would use. Not, that's something I'm going to get back to. That's a future project. This was um, you know, something I do want to do eventually is figure out. At, at the end of this talk, I'll describe to you different strategies that I found through experimental evolution and that I made here. One thing I do want to do is go back to these wild yeasts and figure out what they're all using.
But we have, I think I have about 80 different wild yeast isolates in my freezer right now that I have to go through. That go, that go on sucrose? No, no, that, ah. that not necessarily go on sucrose, that I just have to look at. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so one thing they can do is make more invertase. So this is a wild, this is the wild type invertase right here. And this is an inducible invertase. Now when you make more invertase and put it outside the cell wall, it will create more glucose and fructose outside the cell wall because more will be hydrolyzed. And not only is there more glucose and fructose available for the cell to import, but also creates a gradient of sucrose going toward the cell. So you can see how this would be an advantage for a cell if it would just raise its invertase production. So I just I put a different inducible promoter in front of the SUC2, uh, which is the gene that encodes invertase again. And a single cell could indeed grow at low concentrations of sucrose. So this is a strategy that worked. Uh, another thing that worked is to import sucrose. Uh, I had mentioned the maltose importer before. It's actually called the mal 11 gene. Not that that's important, but it can import sucrose into the cell. And I also made the invertase so it's not secreted and stays cytoplasmic so it only stays inside the cell. So using a strain that I made like this, I import sucrose, hydrolyze it inside the cell, and then the cell can use the glucose and fructose that's inside the cell. Uh, this also works, so I was able to grow cells from low concentrations of sucrose using this strategy. And maltose is two hexagonal rings normally? Yeah, so this, this does work for sucrose. Um, maltose is a disaccharide of two glucoses, so it would be two hexagonal rings, you're right. Okay, so next thing I'll talk about is evolving growth in low sucrose. Uh, so I had three, so I made three different strategies here. Uh, formal to cellular clumps, boost invertase expression, or import sucrose. So I next asked, what would evolution do, given these three possibilities? Would it take one of these, or would it take some combination of these strategies, or would it take a totally different strategy I hadn't thought of? So I did an experimental evolution. Uh, this, those of you who have done this before uh, recognize this dilution here. You just inoculate mutator cells in low sucrose. I used a mutator that had about 100 times the mutation rate of a wild type strain. After about 10 to 14 days, these cells grew to saturation within this flask. This flask was shaking the entire time, so the cells were suspended. I diluted it, and each time point, each dilution, I froze down a sample of yeast. So I'm a little confused about mm -hmm. the hypothetical strategies. Did you, did you actually engineer those strains, or are they more like thought experiments? No, no, they, they, I made them and they, and they grow. They grow. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Those strategies do work. Uh, after 200 to 300 generations, the cells took only two to three days to grow to saturation, so they adapted to the sucrose growth. But how much, how many, I, mean, not, I guess it's not 200 uh, generations, it's not uh, one experiment. So, I mean, in the 10 to 14 days, how many generations are there? Oh, within the 10 to 14 days? So it would be, there were, in, I diluted approximately 500 to 1 each time, so that would be about eight, nine generations? Nine generations each dilution. Uh, okay, so, so nine dilutions. Yeah, oh, and I should say, I'm sorry I didn't say this, but I did 10 uh, cultures in parallel here. That's why I got this 200 to 300 generations. Uh, okay. look, otherwise it looks like a very long experiment. Yes. <laughs> okay, and in the end, uh, nearly all, all the populations were clumpy. So uh, this is a terminology I'll use here. Uh, evil population means an evolved population. Evil clone, when you see that, will mean evolved clone. 
Um, this is what the ancestor looked like, scale bars 50 microns, and you can see this is what the 10 populations look like after this evolution. So, I'm confused about these last questions. How long, how, how much selection have these experiments? Are, are you talking chronological time or? Um, no, 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 generations. So, you said that you got two to 300 by mm -hmm. adding your 10 replicates. No, no, I didn't add them up. So each replicate okay. went through 200 to 300 generations. And yeah. each time, each 10 to 14 days is going through about nine generations. Right. Right. So about 10. Okay. That's right. Yep. Okay. Now, now this 10 to 14 days obviously came down to two to three days. So it was, it wasn't, it, it wasn't 300 divided by, divided by nine times 10 to 14. So you yeah. Waited them to get to it, it took about two months to do, total. But have you transferred each time they got to log? Phase. Each time, each time they grew to somewhere between high log phase and saturation, I transferred them. Transfer. Yep. That question: Did they have that uh, maltose transporter in them? So they do have um, the maltose transport ability. Um, there's been mutations. I don't know the exact mutations that happened to uh, prevent the maltose importer from being expressed. It's actually a, the transcription factor that, that activates the maltose importer and the maltase gene, so the enzyme. It's the same transcription factor that activates both. That is broken somehow in our yeast strain. I don't know exactly how. So did you try adding it back and then doing the same experiment to see if that's also a cap towards healthiness? Um, no, that's an interesting idea, but I didn't. I didn't redo this this evolution again. But that is a that is an interesting idea to so see if that works. Might uh, give an alternate path towards mm -hmm. solving the. No, that's a cool idea. Problem. Yeah. Yes. You, you in each one of those indicate one particular mutant. So you do there are three of them together mm -hmm. and, and look at the competition between the three. You mentioned three strategies. Mm -hmm. uh, are you competing the three strategies? No, I didn't. So I didn't compete the three strategies together. I competed them against a wild type strain, and all three strategies, all three strategies could outcompete the wild type strain in this concentration of sucrose, one millimolar sucrose. So I knew that these mutations, the mutations behind these strategies, could possibly evolve and overtake a population because they could be the ancestor. I did not compete them against each other to see which one was the best. So, so the goal here is what is to see how... The goal here is to see which, given this environment of low sucrose, um, that a cell normally can't grow in or takes a very long time to grow in, uh, there's three possible strategies that I could think of. Um, that you have engineered? That I have engineered. And then you put them here, and, and you want to see how evolution is going to improve? I want to see which one is the most accessible to evolution. If, if there's combinations of strategies that evolution may use, if there's mutations in these pathways that I hadn't even thought of or hadn't seen before. Um, the, you're, not, you're not starting with the engineered strains. I'm not right? starting. I'm starting with an ancestor strain and here. Seeing if they approach ah, sorry. something resembling. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't clear I, about I that. I didn't understand it. So, so you start with the wild type mm -hmm. yeah. in sucrose. Yep. Okay. So and it, and it finds mm -hmm. a, a way. They find a way. A way. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then and then the, the idea is to find among among those that evolved and found a way to 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 grow on sucrose. That's right. You want to compare them with the three strategies that you have? I want to figure out what happened, which, which one of the strategies they used. Or, 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 not, or a new one. Or a new one. And actually, there was a new one, and I'll describe that later.
Right. Any technical question? Did you check over these 203 and generations that sucrose concentration remained low and the other sugars remained also low? So I, I put them in fresh media each time. Yeah, so it, you know, I, I'm sure at the end, all the sucrose was like the hydrolyzed to glucose and fructose, and probably a lot of it was converted to ethanol. Um, so I, don't, I didn't measure the sugar concentration at the end, but um, I replaced the media each time. Yeah. So just a, a practical question. So yeah. when you, I guess when you transfer, Right. So what I did, so what I did for this is I, I spun them down so they were in Eppendorf tube each time. So I concentrated them all in one Eppendorf tube, and from that tube I took um, a you know vortexed it, took a small like a microliter of cells, diluted that again, and then took that diluted culture, put it in the new fresh media, and then I had that Eppendorf tube that I could split in two and freeze down in two copies of it. What was the size of the bottleneck then? Size of the bottleneck was. 500,000 cells? I think it was 500,000 cells, yeah. Yeah, what I'm just wondering is if, if there's anything just in the physical nature of the experiment. That could have given Yeah. You would just pass, be more likely to pass clone some regardless yeah. of what I'll, I'll, I'll get into that. And can we see any evidence for mixed phenotypes in these evolved populations? You mean mixed morphologies? Yeah. Yes, and I'll talk about that right now. Thanks, David. Um, so I checked the clonality of all these just by taking eight different clones and looking at and see if they could grow in sucrose and if they were morphologically identical to my eye. All but one of these populations were morphologically identical as far as I could tell. And they actually had three, this one actually had three different clones, one of which was single cell. So uh, one had small moderate clumps, one had uh, large to small clumps, and one was single cell, as I said, mostly single cell. So this led me to believe there were more strategies that were here. And not only that, I knew there were more than just the clumpiness strategy because the clumpy strategy could outcompete the ancestor cells, but it wasn't good enough on its own. So it could not keep up with these strains here. Okay. Uh, the clump size and the clump variation was very different between uh, different strains. So you can see here's two clones right here. This one is mostly uniform size. You can see this is a histogram right here. And it, it centered mostly around the same spot. This is the ancestor strain, which is much smaller. This is the frequency. It's the histogram frequency here. And this is the diameter of the size versus this other clone right here, which was, you know, came from very small single cells all the way up to almost 60 micron clump size. Is that like an age distribution in some sense? It could be. I didn't look carefully at that, but... Um, I guess that would depend on how they're being made. If, uh, if they're being made by these small guys butting off each time, I'm sure it would be an age distribution. If they're made by splitting in two, then it would be more complex than that. Uh, these guys, I suspect, you know, you can think about it intuitively. These guys probably don't um, break off a single cell, form a new clump. They probably split in two each time. It's just a small technical point. How do you define a diameter for irregular clumps? So this was so this is just data taking off a Coulter counter. Uh, Coulter counter is a device that um, is uh, runs. Uh, you measure the the voltage between um, two points in the system, and you run cells through this aperture, um, a small tube, a, a small aperture, 
and you measure how the resistance uh, changes between these two points that are only connected by this aperture each time a cell passes through. From that, you can get a, an approximate size of this lump. Depend on if an irregular object went through, whether it's right. long wise between the electrodes or. That's right. This doesn't account for that. This is just purely data off the Coulter counter. That's right. And also the clump size regulation varied between strains. So you can see here, this is, um, these are two strains, two different clones that were grown in low sucrose. When I transferred them to the equivalent monosaccharide, so one millimolar glucose plus one millimolar fructose, you can see that this guy stayed about the same, but this guy um, became much smaller. Not sure why. It, it, I wasn't selecting for growth in this concentration, but uh, for some reason, they changed size significantly. And not only that, and I'm not showing the picture, but in high glucose concentrations, they stop forming these elongated cells and they actually stay mostly spherical. There's no evidence for the poisoning that uh, was uh, invoked earlier in this talk. That they're, not, they're not so dense that their waste products are causing trouble. Yeah, I, I can't eliminate that possibility. I mean, this is certainly the guys in the center of this clump are likely glucose depleted, I, I would think. Um, if it's, I don't, I can't eliminate the possibility that they're being poisoned somehow. I suspect not, um, but sure that could be. In a club, who divides? Guys on the outside? I, I'm not sure. I've been one project I'm working on now is watching these under the uh, microscope, watching different bud neck markers to see where growth is happening. Um, I just started that, and I don't, I don't know where the division is happening right now. The, the cells on the outside divide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, something I can, I can talk about with you later, a project I'm actually doing with David and Max, who spoke last week, is to look at colony growth of cells and finding out where cells in a colony grow. And that's exactly what happens. Um, the cells on the outside of a yeast colony grow. And because each layer in you go into the colony, there's less and less glucose available to the cells. Um, so the guys in the middle are starved and likely not growing, whereas the guys on the outside are growing. I suspect the same thing is happening in these clumps, but I, without the data, I can't say for sure. How specific is its adaptation to this environment to the nature of the environment? If you grew in, if you did a selection experiment in higher concentration of sucrose, or you did the selection experiments in glucose and fructose. I would, sus yeah, I would. Um, Maybe clumping is a general response to. Yeah, it could be. Again, I'll talk about that. Uh, there was a similar question before. I'll talk about that, um, how the clumping mutations are selected for in sucrose and no other concentration. but. Um, Yes, in higher concentrations of sucrose, it could maybe these large clumps don't form. This is an extremely low um, concentration of sucrose here. What about doubling time? Are there some measures of fitness relative to ancestor? Um, so that's it's such an extreme difference. It's hard to measure. Yeah. Like, the ancestor um, these. The way I competed the cells to um, try to measure that, so it's really hard to, to um, measure doubling time of these clumps. So what I did instead is I, is I mixed two cultures together, so the ancestor and the evolved clone together. I grew them both to saturation, mixed them together 50-50. And then I diluted them, uh, grew them for a day, diluted them each day, uh, and I looked under the microscope to see if one population was completely eliminated or not. And 
I measured the fitness of a strain depending on how many dilutions it took to eliminate a population. Uh, the evolved clones eliminated the ancestor strain almost immediately in every case. So the fitness, the fitness difference was so extreme that it's, it's, it's difficult to measure. Okay, so now um, I'll talk about analyzing what happened after the fact. Uh, I mentioned this before, what strategies were used? Is it one of the three strategies I talked about before? And what are the mutations underlying these strategies? And some of you may have experienced this, but the evolution took me two months. This analysis has taken me two years. So just a warning to those of you thinking experimental evolution is something easy. Of course, now we had, the next thing now is that sequencing is cheap. Before, we couldn't even figure out what, these, what the bulk of these mutations were, but we are now able to. And a mutator, yeah, that's something I'll talk about here. Um, makes it even more difficult. Although you would have to do the back crossing anyway, likely even without a mutator strain. Okay, so what strategies were used? Uh, these are the three I predicted for multicellular clumps, boost invertase expression, or import sucrose. Uh, as I mentioned before, I have 12 clones. 11 of the 12 form the multicellular clumps. And uh, how did they form? So yeast have two different ways of, of forming clumps in the wild. Uh, they can either flocculate, which means that two cells come together and stick based on the proteins on the surface of the cells. And I made a strain of two different colors here that could flocculate. So I made, I made a flocculating strain with two different colors. And when it, you grow them together, they end up forming these clumps like this. So they're not, um, this isn't, this, the stickiness is not specific to the lineage of the cells. That's why I'm showing these two different colors. They just, if they have the cell surface proteins, they just stick together. And the other way that these, that clumps can form is by incomplete separation. So a cell divides and the cell walls do not separate. And eventually after many cell divisions, they will stick together. And for every single evolved clone, that's actually what happened. I'm showing you a picture here. Um, I made, for every one of these evolved clones, I made two different versions. One that expressed uh, cyan fluorescent protein, another that, that expressed yellow fluorescent protein. They're pseudo-colored here. Um, but I mixed them together in an experiment just like this and grew them from low density in sucrose. And I found that two clumps never had two different colored cells in them. So I can safely say that they form by incomplete separation and not flocculation. So there's two different strains. Yes. So these are these are the same strain that only differ, only differ by the color that they express. That's right. It's the same thing with this one too. This is the, the control flocculation strain I made. Okay. So 11 of the 12 form multicellular clumps using uh, lack of cell separation and not flocculation. Uh, I looked at, um, I sequenced the RNA from each of these strains after they were grown in low sucrose concentrations, and I found that 10 of the 12 had elevated invertase expression. So this was a strategy that they also used. And I don't have, I don't think I'll have time to um, talk about this. This is a longer issue, but I found that none of them actually import sucrose. So this was completely wrong. And I have some, I can speculate why, but I'm not absolutely sure why none of them adopted this strategy. When you say that mm -hmm. boost invertase expression, how much is the criteria you special? So the threshold was significantly different based on RNA sequ sequencing, which is approximately worked out to about three times the expression, at least. For the, the third mm -hmm. uh, pathway, uh, they have to express the smart dose importer, and they have to mutate the, yeah. 
the invertase to, the, to keep it in. They don't have to mutate the invertase. So one thing I didn't tell you is that invertase um, is is expressed in yeast cells both as a cytoplasmic version and as a secreted version. So for the, those of you who know this, there's a signal sequence uh, put on the, on the fry prime end of proteins to tell the cell to secrete the, the protein. Um, there's two different transcripts made from the same SUP2 gene. One is made without that signal sequence and one is made with it. So um, even all the cell had to do was, uh, was evolve the ability to import sucrose and there would be invertase inside the cell to hydrolyze it. What's the, you know, so one genetic event I don't know how broken the transcription yeah, factor is for this. It could be multiple events. That's right. Yeah. So, so did, I forget what you said there, but you, you, did, you did say that you designed these different strategies. What are the fitness effects of these different strategies relative to the ancestor? So if, if sucrose input could be realized... Mm -hmm. would, would it sweep through the population? Yeah. yeah. It likely, it likely would. It did have. It was significantly more fit in sucrose than the ancestor, and it would quickly sweep the population. I think there were just more accessible things. The, the target size for other mutation was probably much higher. On the other hand, I, I found a different strategy by sequencing the RNA. I found that hexose transporter expression was elevated in nearly all of the strains. Uh, so that makes sense in retrospect. If you have a limited amount of glucose and fructose outside the cell, the more hexose transporters you express at the cell membrane, the more likely you are to, to be able to import those. So can I ask a question just to clarify? So when you're saying 11 out of 12, 10 out of 12, 11 out of 12, that means that some of the strains did all three simultaneously? That's right. Most of them did all three. Mm -hmm. yep. In fact, not, none of them did only a single strategy. All of them did at least two strategies. So have you gone back to your freezer stocks to see what the sequence of events is? Um, I, so not phenotypically. I've gone, back to, I've gone back, and that's something I'll talk about, I've gone back to see how the mutation swept the population. Okay. So but for the hexose transporters, are those really mutations? I thought they were sort of regulated. They are regulated. So, so I'll talk about one specific one um, that elevated one specific mutation that I looked at that elevated hexose transporter. Uh, it was not a mutation to the hexose transporter itself. It was a it was a mutation to the regulation upstream of them. Okay, so I found three strategies that were used to answer the selection. Next question is, what are the mutations behind these strategies? And someone had mentioned that uh, these are mutator strains, making these much more difficult. Uh, there was an average of more than 100 mutations per strain, and I only expected maybe five to be causal. I think an average of six, there were an average of six causal mutations per strain. So I couldn't just sequence the, I couldn't just sequence the ancestor and compare it to the above clone because there would be 100 mutations that I have to go through. So instead, uh, I use something called bulk segregate analysis, and I j just want to briefly talk about the life cycle of yeast so that you understand what I did here. So yeast can exist, can divide asexually as either a haploid or a diploid cell. Uh, the two sexes in yeast are called A and alpha. The two haploid cells can mate to form a diploid, and they can also sporulate. So when they sporulate, they undergo meiosis, and from a single diploid, four haploid cells will form in this ascus. And when that ascus germinates, it will form the haploid cells, which will continue to divide. 
So the, the fact that um, the key point here is that uh, undergoing meiosis, there's a random shuffling of the two sets of alleles for each gene in the diploid strain, and that's what allows us to do uh, what I'm going to talk about here. Uh, so these are the evolved clone alleles I'm representing by a, a triangle in these other shapes here. I cross that, so I mate that to the ancestor. So every, every mutant allele I'm showing as a, as a uh, geometrical figure here, and the ancestor alleles are just lines. Uh, these are all the possible combinations um, that we can get from those figures if I take many, many products of meiosis. Uh, I'll have many versions of each of these. So each one of these lines is a different cell. If I select uh, for all of these all at once in sucrose, this will eliminate many of, these, many of the cells that cannot grow in sucrose. Then I sequence both the evolved clone, okay, I'm showing two of the mutations here as an A and a C. I sequence the ancestor, and I sequence this entire pool of cells that I've selected to grow in low sucrose concentrations. Or you can see in this example here, uh, when I line up all the reads from the sequencing, uh, this one differs from A to T. This one also differs from C to G. But the difference is that when I select these, all of these strains have this A mutation. And about 50% of these strains have the G mutation here. Therefore, I call this one a putative causal mutation. I'm not sure it's causal yet. And this strain a non-causal mutation. Any questions on that? It's a, it's a classical genetic trick here. So may, may, many of you probably already know this. I mean, do you learn anything from the proportions of all these um, possibilities that come out? Or you just would learn something about the distance between the crossover? Um, you could. So some of them did. So in some cases, um, there was probably linkage between two genes. In that case, I ignored the one that, um, if it looked like two genes were linked, I assumed that the one with a higher percentage of segregation was the one that was causal. So yes, that did happen sometime. OK, so from 1,521 total mutations, there were 80 putative causal mutations lying in or near 53 different genes. And interestingly enough, AMN1, which is the gene I talked about before that, um, that uh, caused the clumpiness in the wild strains, was not one of the ones that was mutated. So it didn't revert back to its wild type AMN1 form. Oh, but wait a second. It's not, you said that it's not by clumping that it's, they remain clustered. Or maybe I forgot. It is, but there's different mutations that they. They would keep clustered by the fact that they, uh, that they don't separate. Right? Yes, they fail to separate. So they, they form clumps by failing to separate. So right. AMN1 is not involved in that. The AMN1, in this case, was not mutated to form those clumps. There were other genes that were mutated to form the clumps instead. I guess you probably look for epistasis because, I mean, you could have two markers that segregated 50-50. Yeah, I'll talk briefly about epistasis. I didn't do, you'll see it's, it's a difficult thing to do involving some clever barcoding with some of these strains with all the different combinations. Um, it's 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 a project for it's a project for the future. But I, I did a limited amount of looking. So epistasis is for those of you who aren't familiar is uh, two genes that aren't whose action is a completely independent. And um, yes, there's likely epistasis going on here. all your isolates. You won't know. That's right. Yeah. Okay. 
mutated. Even though there's so many genes, uh, there are some pathways that seem the most uh, likely to be mutated. Uh, there were eight mutations in or around ACE2. ACE2 is a transcription factor that activates the cell separation enzymes that breaks down the cell wall between two cells. Uh, because it's a transcription factor that affects many cells, it's likely that this had a much bigger target size than the AMN1 I was talking about before. Uh, that one made sense to me. That I had kind of expected ACE2 to come up because it's such a well-known transcription factor, and it has been shown to make cells clumpy when deleted. Uh, UBR1, on the other hand, didn't make any sense. UBR1 is an E3 ubiquitin ligase that um, is responsible for the N-degron rule, and I have no idea why it came up so often in mutations. Uh, the RGT1 pathway... So a mutation there means that proteins are less degraded than the, in the wild type? Yes. Yeah, I would, I would assume so. There were loss of function. So the, most of these, I don't remember. I think four of them were loss of function mutations. That would be my assumption. I don't know the whole UBR1 mechanism for sure, but my assumption would be that proteins are less degraded in these, in these mutants, yes. Uh, the RGT1 pathway, RGT1 is a repressor of many of the hexose transport genes, and um, there were many genes that are in that pathway. Uh, I found eight of them were mutated. Uh, this was likely, um, and in one case it was for sure, but it's likely what caused the increase in hexose transporter expression. A mediator is a complex that's a general transcription, uh, controls transcription in general. Uh, not, not exactly sure what that's, uh, what those mutations are causing. And IRA1 and IRA2 are in the just general growth, growth pathway, um, response to glucose pathway. And the, a, there was a mutation in one of those two genes in five different strains. So the, these mutations, this is the number of strains that had a mutation in this pathway. Yeah. How does this compare to uh, the Ratcliffe paper where they have the alternate strategy to evolve? Yeah, I don't, they didn't, they didn't have any sequencing data, so I don't know. Oh, do you obtain their strains and just like compare them at all? No, no. Someone told me they had ACE2 mutated, but I, they didn't have any sequencing, or and they didn't have any genetic data in their paper at all, so I don't know um, what they found. Yeah. So these mutations are primarily about forming clumps? Is that the ACE2 is. The rest, I suspect, are not. Oh, okay. But ACE2 isn't the only way that cells form clumps. Okay, so fortunately, uh, yeast can be frozen and thawed. It's one of the great things about yeast. Uh, so they can be thawed, frozen, as far as I can tell, indefinitely at minus 80 C and regrown. And so I took all these putative causal mutations and then tracked them over time. And I made uh, plots that look like this for every one of these strains. So you can see when each of the mutations swept through the population. So in this case, um, these are two uh, these are the two clones I analyzed quite a bit further, so I'll be talking more about these. Um, but you can see early, this, for example, this one, IRA1 and, uh, what is that? Um, IRA1 and CSE2 swept early, and then the other three swept late. And this EVO clone 9, all eight, or there's seven mutations. One was at very low frequency when I isolated it, so it's not shown in this plot. But um, all seven mutations swept uh, very quickly through the population. 
So next I wanted to show that these putative causal mutations were actually causal, so I went back and recreated two of these strains. Uh, in this case, I want to make this ancestor, single-celled ancestor, look like this EvoClone 9. So I put in all eight mutations sequentially into the strain to see if I could recreate not only the morphology of the strain, but also the phenotype, but also the phenotype of good growth in sucrose. The eight putative, not that there is more, more mutations, but just the eight putative that you have. That's right, yeah. The eight, the, from the bulk segregate analysis, those eight that I identified, that's the one that, those are the ones I'm putting in. And the actual uh, mutations, you had to screen these out from, were they in the hundreds? Yes, so that's what the, the, the back crossing yeah. and the sequencing, that's, that's where I got the putative that's causal right. mutations, that's right. Okay. And, uh, and so this is what it looks like. I was able to uh, recreate both the growth phenotype and the morphology of these strains by putting in these eight mutations. So you can see, I'll be showing you a, a few pictures here. The ancestors in yellow, the, uh, the clone, the evolved clone is in green, and the recreated strain, oops, sorry, that's supposed to be magenta, um, misprint, um, is this one right here. You can see they look very similar, and it has excellent growth in sucrose. Um, same misprint here, sorry about that. Uh, the um, same thing with this Evolve Clone 2. This is one of the ACE2 strains. So um, as I'll show you, I just recreated the, the morphology just by mutating ACE2. Uh, but there are five mutations in this strain, and I was able to recreate the morphology and the excellent growth in sucrose. Did you look at anything uh, recreated uh, halfway? I did. Uh, for this strain, I did, and I'll get to that. Maybe try to put just the ACE2, for example, mutation. I'll get to that, yeah. Okay. And so that showed that these, these mutations were sufficient, but, uh, or, you know, were necessary for the, for the growth, but I also wanted to revert the strains. Um, to, so in this case, I took all nine, and, and when I'm making these mutations, I'm, re, I'm replacing the mutation with the different allele. So it's not just using a plasmid um, to, uh, that is within this, within this cell. It's actually replacing the chromosomal gene. Uh, I took the evolved clone with eight mutations and replaced all eight mutations with the wild type allele. And the goal was to make it look like the ancestor. And this also worked. So you can see um, misprint here again. Sorry about that. Um, you can see this is the evolved clone, and this is the, the reverted strain. Um, reverted strain is in this cyan color right here. So it went back to single cell, and there was no growth in sucrose. Okay, same thing with the uh, the reverted strain for the other strain I was looking for the other evolved clone I was looking at. Right, so this told me that this group of mutations, so these eight and these eight five mutations were causal, but were, was each individual mutation causal? So I took the, uh, took the recreated strain again and crossed it back again to the ancestor strain because now I want to see for each mutation what are the what's the percentage of segregants. So in this case, this is just uh, in this cartoon here, uh, these are the four alleles that I put back into the strain, cross it with the ancestor, and if I sequence this pool again after selection in sucrose, if I get 100% of these of the cells have this mutation, I can definitely call this mutation causal. On the other hand, if I have somewhere around 50% or less of this um, 
of this mutation that remains after selecting again, I will call this non-causal. And same thing with these two. So I'll go, um, this one's a little bit complicated, so um, I'll go over this in detail here. Uh, this, these are the two evolved clones I'm looking at here. These are each of the mutations, the five mutations and the eight mutations. And this is the, uh, this is the average of three independent diploids that I selected um, after, right here. And it's the, average, uh, it's the average segregation percentage after the back cross again. So anything, the color is not showing up here, shows up on my computer, but anything less than 50% is definitely going to be non-causal or even selected against. Everything above here is going to be selected for. So you can see in this evolved clone, I was able to resegregate all five of these mutations, so I can definitely call these mutations causal in this case. Uh, down here, the story is less clear. Six of these mutations I can definitely call causal. One was uh, moderately selected for, so it's probably causal. Uh, this one was likely a false positive in the original uh, bulk segregate analysis. So since this one's around 50%, this is likely non-causal, this GCN2. And those dendrites sticking out are uh, represent lineages, or uh, what's going on with the... You mean over here? Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly what's causing that. I think I know the mutation that's causing it, a mutation called GIN4 right here. Um, I don't know what advantage that gives the cell. You can make up stories that maybe that makes it so more. Sort of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what's happening though. It would be a, it's a little counterintuitive because they get a lower concentration of nutrients. Right, but so if but it, they can put more hexose transporters on the outside of the cell too. You mean if they're elongated like that? And the elongations are strings of cells, or are they a single? System? So these are different. These are, these look to my eye uh, when I look on the microscope. These are separate cells right here, and they each seem to have their own nucleus. So they're not um, they're not like a lot of the uh, hyphal fungal fungal strains have um, multiple nuclei per per cell. It doesn't look like that's the case here. Um, so this is the one that's likely non-causal. Uh, I told you before that I was measuring fitness of these strains in low sucrose. Um, I could also measure these in different environments. So four of the 12 clones grew very poorly in low monosaccharide concentration, the equivalent of the sucrose. So this tells me that, that they were selected only for sucrose and not necessarily for low glucose and fructose. Uh, the, other, the other eight grew about as well as the ancestors. So there definitely was no selection for low monosaccharide. Uh, also, 11 of the 12 grew extremely poorly in high glucose concentration, so 80 millimolar glucose. And the other one grew about as well as the ancestor. So I wanted to look more into what was causing this. Um, and of the alleles that, that made, so the, uh, the mutations that made them grow poorly in here either had no effect in sucrose, so they were neutral in sucrose, and they were just acquired as one of those 95 uh, non-causal mutations, or they were selected for in sucrose um, by uh, result in poor growth in high glucose or low monosaccharide. So these two recreated strains did eliminate a lot of this high glucose effect. So there were likely many mutations that had no effect in sucrose, uh, but were detrimental in the other media conditions. But it didn't, I wasn't able to, even those recreated strains did not grow well in high glucose or low monosaccharide, not as well as the ancestor. 
So I did this, I did this segregation, I did this selection of the segregants again, except this time I selected these in low concentrations of monosaccharide to see what alleles were selected for uh, in different environments. So in this case, if I had this, so I had three of these alleles were causal and sucrose, if I see that this allele was also selected for and low in the equivalent monosaccharide, then I can say, oh, this gene is probably responsible for good growth in low glucose, in low sugar concentrations in general. On the other hand, uh, if these two strains, uh, this one was actually select, this one would be selected, this allele would be selected against in low monosaccharide, and this one would have uh, no effect in low monosaccharide, so it would be neutral. Everyone okay with this? Okay, so I went back to this graph again, and you can see there were, there were different combinations of these, um, of what I showed you back here. Uh, so there were some, um, some alleles that were strongly selected against in the low monosaccharide, GIN4 and CSC2, uh, some that were neutral and some that were also selected with the, um, as, as almost as highly as the sucrose. So we can say, for example, that this UBR1 mutation, the E3 ubiquitin ligase, somehow gives the cell an advantage in low sugar concentration in general. And the interesting ones here, so I'm highlighting ACE2, which is neutrally selected, slightly selected against. Uh, MCK1, ERK8, and GIN4 in this other strain right here, uh, either neutrally selected or strongly selected against in the case of GIN4. These were the mutations that actually recreated the the clumpy phenotype. So you can say that these alleles, uh, these alleles, although this clumpiness, although selected in sucrose, uh, was not selected for in the low glucose and fructose. So I answer somebody's, um, you know, this, is, this is after the fact analysis, but this answers somebody's question about whether this clumpiness would be selected for anyway in this, in this concentration here. And I also did this in 80 millimolar glucose. Uh, and you can see there's also a wide variety of, of, um, of uh, selection of, of segregation percentages for these alleles. And in particular, this GIN4 is interesting down here. So UBR1, again, the E3 ubiquitin ligase, was actually selected against um, in the glucose. So this may be one of the mutations that causes poor growth in glucose where it was selected for in the sucrose and the monosaccharide. You're assuming here that the phenotype is a yes-no switch, right? But what if it is not? What if it is some kind of a complex effect of any proteins? Uh, you, do you mean the phenotype of growth in glucose? Or this clumpiness? Yeah, clumping. Well, I'll show you. In this case, in this case um, it is complex because it's, it's at least three, it's three genes. Um, that the thresholds might, might be changed slightly by different frequencies of polymorphisms and so it may not be that the mutations are just riding along with some other effect that that, they, that, that is actually responsible for the phenotype. So you're saying there should, there could be some kind of epistasis that's happening they're bringing along. In this case that's probably not true. I'll show you why in the next slide. Are any of those guys selected against linked to uh, did you knock out just one subunit in this country? Oh, to make him a mutator? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the mutator. Yeah, and, and I did look at that. So the mutator I, I used, it was a mutation in POL3, which is a polymerase, and it removes the proofreading ability of the polymerase. Um, it seemed to be neutrally selected, um, almost all neutrally selected for um, in the original backcross, the POL3 mutation. I don't remember the details. I can check it. 
if you want. I think in one case it was almost up to 90%, but they may have just been random. They remain highly mutated all the time? Did that revert? I don't know. I didn't measure the mutation. Are you asking if, if at the end of the evolution, if it was still a mutator? Um, I don't know. I didn't measure the mutation rate at the end. Did, did you, you deleted the proofreading domain? No, no. It's a single point mutation. And, and all, so if you're asking if they all had this mutation still in, that caused the mutator phenotype, yes, they did. They all still had this mutation. Whether they actually still had an elevated mutation rate, I'm not sure. Okay, so this is getting back to your question. Um, I, I dug deeper in a lot of these, um, in these strains to ask, is ACE2 actually responsible for the clumpiness? So someone was asking about epistasis before. To truly do epistasis on these, I would need to make uh, back here 32 combinations of strains here and 256 combinations of strains here, which I would like to do eventually. It's just going to take some thought and some clever barcoding to make, um, so I, I'm not making all these strains one at a time and I'm able to make them in bulk. Uh, but it is a future project. Uh, but for now, instead, I just made nine combinations of strains of this certain, um, of this uh, recreated two, or evolved clone two. And in this case, you can see uh, I scored these by eye, but it was night and day in this case for all the five combinations that had the wild type ACE2, they were all single cell. And for the four that had the mutated ACE2, they were all clumpy. So I would say this is a one gene effect here. Yeah, I was asking about the other. These are all the, the uh, mutations of major effect, right? Mm -hmm. I was wondering about the ones that have perhaps more minor effects. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you get 50-50, but you know, big A, big B could all be in one clone, and little A, little B all in one clone, and you, you would be eliminating yeah. them from your analysis. That's that. The, yeah, and and any only way to bring those back up is to do this epistasis that I was talking about. Yeah. But that'd be even worse than this, right? Yes. <laughs> Those are all the ones that you're right? That's right, yeah. So, so, so you, you, this is checked in glucose with sucrose? This is in sucrose. So the ancestor should not grow in sucrose, or the ancestor was in glucose? This ancestor? So it, it took about a week to grow this, but that's what this picture, that's what I did. So I grew all these in, um, in sucrose. This one I started at a little bit higher density, so I didn't have to wait too long to grow, but these were all checked in sucrose, yeah. It just takes, the, the, the ancestor strain to do these experiments just uh, takes me a lot of waiting until it grows. Yeah. In the ancestor strain, strain, when you have a budding event, mm -hmm. uh, what is your sense of how they ultimately separate? The, uh, the, daughter, you mean? the daughter buds off, yep. and then it's just ordinary molecular diffusion that slowly carries her away from her mother? So these are all shaken. Oh, these are shaken. Yeah, so the evolution was done in shaken culture, and all these tests are done in shaken culture here. There's presumably some sort of relationship too between the size of the clumps and their growth rate. And mm -hmm. To me, the most interesting part is how these clumps come to leave clump babies. Yeah, um, yeah. So there must be something going on beyond, well, they're clearly fragmented, aren't they? Yeah. And in the SACE2 case, they certainly are, yeah. Right, and, and some of the clumps seem to have few cells in them, I mean, in between the different lines, and others are quite large, substantive structures, suggesting there are already quite some variation in their capacity. Yeah, so one thing that I can think of that may be happening is, so when, when a cell undergoes cytokinesis, it, um, 
it secretes enzyme, the daughter cell secretes the separation enzymes to the bud neck, allowing the two cells to separate. So if, in the case of the ACE2 delete, it prevents that daughter cell from ever secreting those enzymes to the bud neck, so it will never separate. And it could eventually be some kind of mechanical pushing mechanism that finally separates these clumps away from each other. That would be why they don't form single cells necessarily. On the other hand, if, if this, um, if, if this, if the daughter cell is still allowed to secrete enzymes to the bud neck, but maybe in a more limited fashion or maybe something else happens, maybe there's a chance that the daughter cell can separate on the first division and that allows some single cells. Maybe if it doesn't separate on the first division, it never will, and which would create large clumps and um, also allow daughters to um, break off occasionally. Uh, in the case of that very large strain, may, maybe they don't separate as these guys do because there's more room caused by the filamentous growth. It's probably cruel and unusual punishment to ask you to do even more experiments than you've already displayed here. But, but if you were to double or have the amplitude of the shaker, does the clump size in your Evolve clone too? Yeah, I wondered about that, yeah. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't done that yet, but yeah, that's an interesting so idea. Though. the shaking is an efficient diffusion constant or something. You mean with the shaking? Yeah, but effectively it acts as a diffusion. Yeah. Doubling or... or for the nutrients and stuff, but then the question is, can you shake the clump apart? Right, right. And, and, and there may be some effects. So my um, my PhD was actually in electrical engineering, and I worked in microfluidics. And um, the device I was trying to build was a um, a device to capture cells, to capture yeast cells, and uh, hold them at the end of a magnet and watch them divide, and then be able to capture the daughters each time the daughters broke off. And so I built this device that worked great. It could magnetically capture cells you know, out of a flowing stream, and then the cells would sit there while it d divided. The problem was that the daughter cells wouldn't break off. And it surprised everyone because people were used to doing, you know, they're used to yeast, unicellular yeast, where they, um, you know, they, they can look on a plate and they can watch the cells break apart, or they take this culture and the cells are all divided. So this shocked everyone when they saw it that these daughter cells would not come off. And I don't know what was happening yet, but it could be an effect like that, that because these were in a microfluidic flow stream the whole time, it was washing away these chitinases and gluconases that were supposed to be breaking down the bud neck, and it never allowed them to separate. On the other hand, in the shaken culture, maybe it reaches a density that's high enough so there's a background density of these chitinases and gluconases, or maybe the shaking isn't hard enough so that they can still, um, it prevents the diffusion of these so quickly or something. Personally, fact to the one with, with the sugars that, that you numerically analyzed. Right, yeah, so it could be something like that. So I, I don't know um, necessarily, but there could be some effect with shaking either by mechanical breakage like David was talking about or with diffusion, you know, the diffusion or the washing away, I should say, of these enzymes by the shaking. Try an ultrasound and look for acoustic microstreaming and see, and that's another way to break them up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so these actually, so um, I did try sonicating, which yeah, is ultrasound, um, uh, and these guys do not break up. Um, eventually, it kills the cells, but um, the, these connections do not break up in the sonicator. Very interesting to know to what extent, if any, there is any endogenous capacity of these groups to fragment. If you were to turn off the shaker and just 
Yeah, that's a good idea. I should do that sometime. Yeah, to see. Yeah, I don't know how these how these ACE2 guys grow in that case. That'd be interesting. I do know it looking at um, looking at um, cell colony growth. The project I'm working on with David and Max. A lot of what I'm doing is looking at the AMN1 cells. So the guys that grew clumps, they actually stay. Um, should be chalk somewhere. Yeah, I was trying to figure it out. I guess I'll draw over here so most people can say it. Um, if you look at a yeast colony, and this is a growing yeast colony, and you look at the individual cells, in a normal uh, wild-type strain, they're all very tightly packed like this. On the other hand, if you look at that AMN1 strain, you actually see, can see clumps of cells within here. So you can, you know, just by eye, you can tell that these are the AMN1 cells, and these are the... Um, uh, wild type cells. This is grown in a 96 well plate looking at a microscope looking up through a glass bottom uh, 96 well plate. Um, so these clumps, at least in the AMN1 case, the case I referred to earlier in the talk, um, these clumps don't necessarily break up. Okay, so this is pretty clear that this is ACE2's very simple mechanism here uh, causing the clumpiness. Uh, another simple one, I mentioned that uh, there was an elevation in hexose transporter expression. And uh, you can see here, uh, this is HXT4. It's one of the hexose transporters. Uh, when I sequenced the RNA, I found that this was elevated in this particular strain. So I wanted to see which, which gene was responsible for the elevated HXT4 expression. Uh, this MTH1, this is in the pathway of the, of the RGT1 uh, repressor that I mentioned earlier. The RGT1 is what represses hexose transporters. So it made sense to me that uh, the strains with a wild type MTH1 um, uh, were low in expression, the sexos transporter, and the strains with the uh, loss of function mutation, MTH1, uh, relieving its repression function, uh, allowed HXT4 to be more highly expressed. So this was a very simple, simple gene to, um, that caused this strategy of elevate hexos transport. Uh, Do you know if it's just... Did you just pick uh, HXT4 just to, as a sample, or do you know? No, HXT4 I knew, I knew was elevated because when I analyzed the RNA, when I sequenced the RNA from this particular strain, that was the one transporter that was elevated. And do you know what the KM value is? Is smaller than the It was, it was, it, uh... It's sort of like a high affinity transporter? Yeah, it was a high affinity transporter. I, I forgot what the KM was, but it's pretty low. Okay. So it made sense that it was elevated. Okay, and this is the SUC2 was far more complicated though. It looks like there's some kind of additive effect. There's a little bit of a jump here, but um, I was not able to pinpoint, SUC2 is invertase again, not able to pinpoint uh, the elevated invertase expression on one gene. Okay, so uh, I mentioned some of these things I'm still doing. You can probably guess that there's just a, you could probably work on these strains for about 20 years and not do all the things. So I'm very sorry for those of you who are shocked I didn't do um, the experiments you proposed yet. Um, the uh, one thing I, I'm really interested in is what we were just talking about. What regulates the size of the clumps? Uh, what 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 are the pressures that set the size of the clumps, and what are the genes that are responsible for regulation? Uh, especially this guy that changed between the sucrose and the monosaccharide. Uh, what um, find the other mutations are responsible for hexose transporter and invertase increase in the other strains? 
And uh, I'd like to recreate other strains and find the other mutations that underlie these strategies as well. So I can see if there's overlapping genetic networks that all contribute to the same mutation or the same strategy. Yeah, that's it. Thanks. Yes. Hey, sorry. Um, when you sequenced, did you sequence um, transcriptomes, right? Right. Mm -hmm. For the RNA. Yep. Uh, what do you think the other role, <coughs> the other parts might be playing the, the non-coding RNAs and changes in methylation status? Do you think? Yeah, it could be. I didn't look. I didn't look into that. I, I just did a very, you know, the, the you know, the, the very, the most basic um, RNA analysis, which is compare the ancestor to the um, evolved strain and call significant differences. I didn't. That is interesting to look into that other stuff, but I didn't look at that the methylation state and and any, any other um, RNA expression. In the clumps, do you believe there is a phenotypic diversity? I mean, division of labor, so that they, they would be clonal, but uh, different. Yeah, so there could be. Yeah, there could be some very basic division of labor. Um, the most basic I could think of, other than uh, growth rate, which is kind of a division of labor, different growth within the clump, is different invertase expression throughout the clump. That that could be. Um, I haven't looked at that yet, though. I do have, I have been putting um, invertase expression fluorescent markers into these strains to look at that, but that is something I'm curious about. Yeah. So you just mentioned the, having these expression markers, so then I've asked, um, and maybe you said it before that I just missed, uh, have you, or is it possible to look at the, the transcriptome? I guess the question is, so you have uh, basically similar phenotypes, uh, but you have some with different sets of mutations potentially. Uh, is there some sort of convergence on the level of uh, uh, gene expression, for example, right? Uh, you, you have these various, well, although I guess you, you see this ubiqu ubiquitination hit which sort of suggests yeah, that really complicates not things. so much by right. uh, transcription, but by degradation. But I'm also curious if these different genotypes are leading to overabundance of certain particular proteins. Ultimately. Yeah, that, that does. So the, the fact that UBR1, that's the E3 ubiquitin ligase, is, is mutated, a loss of function makes it, um, you know, makes even this RNA data um, me question this RNA data because, um, not question the RNA data, but wondering if it really tells the whole story. Uh, you can see with a single mutation in UBR1 hardly affects uh, SUC2 expression, but perhaps the UBR1 is somehow um, involved in, uh, in not degrading SUC2 that's already been made. And just for example, I don't think that's the case here, but um, that does indeed complicate things, the, any transcriptome analysis or any um, expression analysis through microscopy. Yeah. Yeah. Just to return to the, the, this work with, with Max um, about a, uh, a nutrient screening length, mm -hmm. um, do I remember correctly that the, the screening length that you've measured is like 20 cell widths or something? Or yeah, it's something on order of 20 cell widths, so you, yeah. And you didn't have any clumps that were larger than that in this particular? There were, so there were, it, it's on order of 100. Um, the screening length was on order of 100 um, 
microns. So by screening length, David is referring to the penetration depth of growth within a cell colony. And it's somewhere on order of 50 to 100 microns. There were some of those larger clumps. Some of those larger clumps did have um, diameters in excess of 100 microns, especially the one I showed at the end there. So presumably that could be starved. Um, there's uh, the physiology of these evolved clones could be changed such that um, that maybe the guys on the outside are importing more glucose, not letting the guys on the inside get um, get enough glucose. So that could change the penetration depth in this case. It's a kind of specialization. Yeah. So those ACE2 mutants are the morphology of the individual cells different than the other clumps? So, so the, the, kind of if you notice, the, the cells are actually a little bit smaller. Um, you can see that, it, you know, by eye, you can tell that the cells are slightly, you know, it's probably less than a micron, but they are slightly smaller than um, the ancestor cells. And so when you get some of your other evolved strains, it looks like the cells became more oval-shaped. Yeah, they, yeah, that's, where is like morphology. this guy down here. Yeah, so the morphology of the individual cells was definitely different throughout the, um, and th this is the most extreme case here, but th there was different morphology among the different evolved clones. So can you get any of them to just produce the odd-shaped cells without being clumpy? So individual units. Oh yeah. So I was just wondering if that's maybe a, a pseudo. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, so how far did that got to go here? Uh, so here. Um, so in the in the low monosaccharide here, this guy does make guys that are almost. Um, oh, so you can those revert back to almost single cell there. Yeah, and, and so I'm not showing here, but there are also in this case. You now this is selective microscopy here, but um, in this case there are these guys do make a lot of these shaped cells as well. Okay. Um, it's just that there are um, hardly any of these large clumps in this media right here. Yeah, so these do exist in there. Are there any of your clones that can't be plated as single cells? Have they lost the ability to be single cell clones? Yeah, the ACE2, and I rarely see single cells in those ACE2 mutants. So yeah, those ones, those ones cannot be plated as single cell. Yeah. And so most of these have this upregulated uh, high affinity transporter. That would yeah, I don't change the penetration depth mm -hmm. into the clump. Yeah. I, I don't remember. So they, they all had, when I said there was 11 of 12 clones had elevated hexose transport, there's, you know, there's something like 20, 16 to 20 different hexose transporters in yeast. There's four, six major ones, I think. Um, there were different hexose transporters elevated in most of them. HXT4, the one I was showing before, the high affinity, was elevated in most of them, if I remember correctly. Um, but there were different combinations, and I don't remember which were high affinity and low affinity. And the cells exchange the nutrients between them, each other. So, not going outside the cell, but from one cell to the, to the other. So, so in your transport within this clump from cell to cell, or is this not possible? Well, you can kind of say that's what's happening with invertase. So, invertase breaks down sucrose, and the other cells import the glucose and fructose. Um, but like direct channels. From oh, direct channels. The closest. So, yeast. Uh, converts all the glucose in the media or the simple sugars in the media into ethanol. So ethanol diffuses outside the cell and can be captured by other cells, but that's not an active transport. Um, 
I don't know of any active transport of sugars. Well, there is, there are some storage sugars. Trehalose is secreted outside the cell, so I guess there could be. I didn't look at that, but um, yeah, I guess there could be trehalose exported outside the cell and consumed by the something. The cells did not separate. They got separate. Is it possible? Do they have a, a shared cytoplasm? It doesn't look like it. So I haven't. You know, I haven't. It is plausible that there could be a small hole in between um, two cells. It doesn't look at it from just um, DIC microscopy. Um, to know that for sure, I would do, have to do something like, um, you, you like um, take, you know, express the fluorescent protein throughout the whole cell and then photobleach one area and see if it diffuses to the other. That's the common trick for that kind of thing. I haven't done that, but that's an interesting question. That could answer his question. Yeah. Oh, did you mean oh, straight yeah, to the cell? I understand. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Okay, I thought you meant active transport outside the cell. No, no. Yeah. So yeah, I haven't looked at that. I understand. Huh? Yeah. We thought about taking the groups from the endpoints here and allowing them to compete with one another. Continue the experiments. Yeah. So you look at the evolution. Yeah, that's another thing I thought about to see which one is best. Yeah. Well, and also yeah. potentially, given that they seem to be able to reproduce under these states. Um, yeah the evolution of some sort of group level traits even if selection could work at this group level. Yeah, that, that would be interesting too, yeah. Yeah. Hey, one, one interesting um, thing I didn't go into is that the, uh, so the strategies that, that, I, that I engineered, I competed those against the, against the wild type strain. And the clumpy strain easily beat the ancestor strain. The, the engineered clumpy strain easily beat the ancestor strain. The sucrose importer easily beat it. But the one that, the one that expressed elevated levels of invertase, even though it grew very well in low sucrose, so did the wild type strain, which means that it was actually helping out the wild type strain um, in the growth. And I was, and the reason it came up so often in the evolution, even though you wouldn't, it was such a slight fitness advantage that I wouldn't think it would necessarily arise in this short evolution. Maybe because forming the clump actually allows it to share um, the invertase more easily with the other cells versus the other cells that don't have that certain invertase mutation, the elevated expression mutation. And also because, um, maybe the elevated hexose transport allows it to suck in those uh, glucose and fructose more quickly before the other cells, even though they're not technically cheater cells, but the cells that aren't making the elevated levels of, of invertase can capture them. Could it easily to be uh, back, evolved to single one? Oh, could these, could these devolve? Kind yeah, of, yeah, I could observe. Um, no, I haven't seen that. When I was diluting the cultures, it seemed that um, anything that was clumpy stayed clumpy and didn't go back. Um, there was that one clone that stayed single cell the whole time, but I didn't see anything go back to single cell. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, thanks.